What's up? I'm in the studio with Brandon Jenkins, host of the new season of Mogul. As you may know, Mogul is a hip-hop documentary, and the first season was hosted by none other than our daily departed brother, Reggie Osei. We're going to hear a preview of the new season in just a moment. But first, Brandon, what can people expect from the new season? It's funny, real quick, I was about to say blow, but I was like, I can't do it how you guys do it, so I fell back. Yeah, it's just a blow. Nah, like... you got you to be ready. You got to be ready. But you said, um, what can they expect from um, from this new season? Yes, what's the um, new season of Mogul? Yep. I mean, the new season is about Miami um, hip-hop and not like maybe what you think when you think that. You might be thinking South Beach and like mm. expensive cars. Now nah, we kind of started at like the roots. So we started with the two live crew of Miami bass music, which is really like um, the, the the foundation of Miami rap. And, and to be honest, a lot of rap today. So we you're thinking two live crew, Uncle Luke, Trick Daddy, Trina, um, DJ Raw, Mm. Uh, DJ Uncle Al. So like these like some big figures that you know and some more lesser known underground cult figures that you know. So we really did our digging. That's dope. That's dope. Education at its finest. Mogul. Um, how was it different working on um, the second season as opposed to the first season? Well, I didn't get a chance to work on the first one. So the first one I got to hear as a listener. Right. And so when you hear it, it's like, oh, this is great. And then naturally that's what attracts you to it. You want to be a part of it. And then you when you're on season two, you got to make the thing. And you're like, oh, okay, so this is the work they put in. This is the level of work that they do. I got I to gotta find my role and I got to keep up. So I think hearing season one now, I can go back and listen to it. And I'm just like, just seeing the amount of work, the stories, the stories that are told, thinking what those interviews were like, thinking about how many times they had to chase people down, get the story, follow up on the story, write the script, combat right. sitting in there doing takes. I can, even hearing season two, while I love it, I'm I'm already thinking three four because like I yeah. yeah like ways to to make this thing even better. Yep. But um, <clears throat> it's just to, it's vastly different. So not working on season one, um, it's different. The fact that I'm the host and not combat, um, it's different that we went to Miami, not New York. It's different that we told the story over several different figures, both known and unknown, as opposed to one central figure in Chris Lighty. It's it's completely different, but it's still got like the ethos and integrity of of mogul. What was the most surprising thing you learned uh, working on season two? Man, um, man, there, there's so many other like cult figures in Miami that I didn't know about. You know, I, I know Rick Ross. I know Two Live Crew. I know Trina, Trick Daddy. But there's so many other like not smaller but lesser known figures that have helped to build this thing. Yep. Um, I You learn that they, they live what they rap about, that it's real to them, and this is really how they live their lives. You learn that Miami, I kind of knew it, but... Miami really was one of the first endeavors in the South. And it's one thing to read it as a headline or see it at an award show. It's another thing to watch, like hear the people make it. And you're like, wow, like you guys really made this thing out of nothing. And I didn't learn it, but I was reminded that hip hop and rap is just truly an art form. Like people are making this thing out of thin air with nothing and scraps. <clears throat> and that it's genius in just that and being able to find your ideas and to make them into reality. And to a point where it didn't exist before. Like, we live with rap, it's oxygen now. But there was a point where someone was, like, finding these rare elements and putting them together. So um, I learned some new things about Miami, but I was reminded about a lot of things that I love about hip-hop and gained a, a deeper appreciation for them as well. Well, all right, let's get into it. This is an excerpt from the first episode of the new season of Mogul. Blow! That's the blow. I was going to do it, but I mean, you got it. <laughs> nah, you got it, you got it. Let's go. Thank you. 
I want to take you back to the night of June 10th, 1990. There was a full house at the Club Futura nightclub in Hollywood, Florida. Everyone was there to see the hot new rap group 2 Live Crew perform their hit album as nasty as they want to be. Club Futura is small, dark, and sweaty. There was about 400 people in the crowd that night, crammed in shoulder to shoulder. And from the moment 2 Live Crew frontman Luke Campbell walked on the stage and launched into their hit song, Head Booty Cock, every single one of them went totally apeshit. Everyone was just bouncing off the walls. I thought the place was just gonna fall apart. That's the feeling I got. I, I wasn't nervous, but I was just like, man, I, this club can't take this. This is crazy. It was like a bomb that was lit. The place was on fire, you know, you know, lit- not literally, but figuratively. There's this picture that was taken to the crew that night. In it, you see the group's leader, Luke Campbell. He's in an orange t-shirt that says, too black, too strong, too live. He's tilting the mic to his mouth and grinning. The pack crowd in front of him are frozen mid-hop, mid-bump, mid-grind. Luke looks unstoppable. He looks like a god. But just a few hours after that concert, a totally different picture. Luke's bent over the side of a police car, legs spread, his palms stretched across the hood. He's still in that same orange t-shirt, too black, too strong, too live. Behind him, there's a cop, a much shorter man in a starched white shirt. He has his hands around Luke's waist. In the background, there are more cops and blinking police lights. A crowd begins to gather, and one of them is filming. So what you're hearing is actual footage of what happened that night. The cops tell everyone to stand back. You guys want to back up a minute, please? And then, the cuffs go on. The thing that got Luke arrested that night, it was the same thing that got the crowd screaming his name. His lyrics. He landed in handcuffs because of lines like this. And this. And this. See, just a few days earlier, a Florida judge had ruled that Two Live Crew's music was obscene. And so performing their songs was now against the law. That's why Luke was being arrested. 
And it's how Luke and the Two Live crew became hip-hop's unlikely champions for freedom of speech. From Spotify and Gimlet Media, you're listening to Mogul, a show about hip-hop's most iconic moments told by the people who live them. This season, we'll tell you the story of how Luke Campbell and the Two Live crew took hip-hop and made it faster and harder and nastier. So nasty that they ended up getting arrested and put on trial for obscenity. Luke and the crew were going to have to fight to keep their music on the airwaves and to keep themselves out of jail. And that battle exploded, forcing people across America to talk about race, sex, power, who gets to say what, and who should be allowed to listen to it. Luke became the face of that fight. He stood on his own, his own ten toes, stood up, went to war, fight against the government, fucking democracy, you know what I'm saying? Talk them niggas to the Supreme Court. He went in there and he represented. He dressed the part, he spoke the part, and he acted the part. He went and fought for something that paved the way for all of us to be able to come into this platform to do what we're doing. Like, it would be none of us here without that, you know? That was bigger than hip-hop. That put Miami on the map. We're going to take you inside the world of the Two Live crew and the other hustlers, dreamers, and DJs who shaped hip-hop in the 305. My name is Brandon Jenkins, and on this season of Mogul, we're going to Miami. Say the words 1980s Miami, and you get a flood of pop culture references. You got Don Johnson and Philip Michael Thomas in Miami Vice, bronze bodies on the beach, fun in the sun, yacht parties, discotheques, Scarface. And of course, South Beach, that iconic shoreline of newly built skyscrapers reaching into the sky, with drop-top convertibles revving up and down Ocean Drive. But we're not going there. Because our story, the story of the birth of Miami hip-hop and the two live crew, it takes place about nine miles away from South Beach, across the bay, deep in the heart of inner city Miami, in a neighborhood called Liberty City, the black part of town. South Beach is not Miami. This is Maurice Samuel Young, but you might know him by his stage name. Yo, this Trick Daddy Dollars, representing Miami 305 Dade County. Trick grew up in Liberty City. It's six square miles, 20,000 people, almost all of them black. Us as hood people, people out the hood, I wouldn't even say niggas or black people, people out the hood, we didn't, couldn't, and had no intentions on going to South Beach. We didn't go there. If you really was from Miami back in them days, like you, South Beach wasn't the thing to go to. This is Trina. And I am a hip-hop international Rock star. Trick and Trina say that they didn't need South Beach because for black kids in Liberty City, there was only one place to kick it, a teen disco called the Pack Jam. And everything we're going to talk about in this story, bass, booty shaking, the first album to be declared legally obscene, it all starts here. 
it, it, it was the, like the birth of the culture. It kind of defined it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it gave us identity. You know, like, you go to Pageant this weekend, you talking about it all week in school, and you can't wait to get back to the next weekend, you know? Friday and Saturday, you know? That's JT Money. JT was part of the Miami rap group Poison Clan. He was a teenager when the Pac Jam opened up. And when it did, it was one of the few places for kids in the neighborhood to go. After a riot in 1980, the economy in Liberty City tanked. Crime and unemployment rose, and a lot of local businesses moved out of the neighborhood. And the Pac Jam moved in. It was based in an empty warehouse. The perfect spot because there was lots of space for a dance floor and stacks of speakers. And kids like JT, Trick, and Trina would come through to dance their asses off. Me and some cats in Miami, we debate on this, but I know the truth because I was there. First Pac Jam was on 199th and off of 441. It, it got so jam-packed, they just reversed the name and called it the Pac Jam. You know, as you walking up to the place, you can feel the doors vibrate. You can hear the you know what I'm saying? And by the time you open it, <laughs> the music all in your chest, but that's what we went there for. As soon as the door swing open, it's like thunder. Just imagine like one whole wall filled with like speakers. I mean like maybe eight to 10 speakers and this is one side and the other side is equally the same. I remember being a youngster pulling up. You see, of course, all the hustlers, you know what I'm saying? All the old schools. This is Rick Ross. The biggest boss in the game, young Renzel, AKA Rick Ross. I remember seeing Trina this years before she uh, was an artist. She was just one of those band hood stallions. And I remember seeing her pull up and God damn, that's what this shit is. You know what I'm saying? You, you brought out the, the finest in the city. The richest in the hood. That's what you brought out when you went to the pack gym. I'm trying to imagine, like, you know, how many people were in there? What Was it hot in there? Was it, like, what were people yeah. wearing? Yeah, well, you know, Miami, we barely wore clothes back then. <laughs> you ain't wearing what you wore at the house with your mama. No, ma. When we get out the car, my homegirl got the bag, and we're changing it to our tennis skirt, because this was tennis skirts was popping back then. Oh, trust me, that was the whole vibe. It was always going to be something tight and cut up. That's DJ Nisi D. She used to hang out at the Pack Jam, too. It was tight <laughs> and lace or tight and, and fringe or tight and tight and black. <laughs> it had to be black. We wore silk shirt, fisherman hat, tailor-made pants. You, you had the, the, the wavy hair, uh, whether it was your own or a weave. <laughs> of course, in the 80s, everybody had a Michael Jackson jacket. If you ain't had a Michael Jackson jacket, you was a mob. With the zippers? Yes, you had this Michael Jackson jacket. So picture the inside of the pack gym. You've got about 600 teenagers crammed into a space designed to hold no more than 300. And as you can imagine, it would get pretty hot in there. Hot, it's like 110 degrees hot. Like super hot, because you got all these kids packed up in here. You know, kids, they wild and they dance and they all over the floor. I'm saying so hot to like the walls are wet, sweating like. A lot of people told me that, that it would get so hot inside the pack jam that the walls would drip. It was also super loud in there. The noise was driven by a wall of powerful Sirwin Vegas speakers. Everyone called them Vegas for short. And they were stacked on top of rows and rows of bass bins. 
They needed all this gear because at the Pack Jam, it wasn't enough to hear the music. You had to feel it. The real niggas, right, what we call the real niggas, the goons, the thugs, we stood in front of that Vega. Even with the sound? That, 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 that the sound was the high. The sound kept us going. The bass, the, the high intensity, it kept us going. If you go in the club and the, and the sound don't sound right, we be right, man, let's get out of here, man. They need to get that fixed, that sound. We, we need that sound. We need it to sound good. We need to feel it. Bass, it, you had to have good speakers that could push that bass out, you know what I mean? The bass literally just takes control of my organs on the inside and they just start vibrating and bouncing to the music. Mm. And I just become one with the vibration of the bass and the beat of the music. And presiding over all these stacks of speakers and grinding bodies, the undisputed king of the pack jam, Luke Campbell. He's the guy who got arrested at the start of the episode for his dirty rhymes. Luke's the one who made all this come to life. The dude who had the idea, bought the building, lined it with speakers, and put the word out in Liberty City. I think Luke was the man. Luke was the man. You know, I'm looking up as, yeah, that's Luke Skywalker right there. That's the guy who throw the pack jams, you know? We knew him as such. Luke been the party man. It was, those were epic, epic parties. I mean, my parties as a DJ uh, at the Pack Jam were, I mean, were historic. That's the man himself, Luke Campbell. Luke was sort of like the Pack Jam's conductor, but he wasn't controlling an orchestra. He was moving a crowd full of sweaty teenagers. And most nights, the kids at the Pack Jam would be begging Luke to spin a certain record, a record that brought everything to its apex. Because this song told everyone that it was time to hit the dance floor and move together as one. Think cha-cha slide. But this wasn't the kind of dance routine you could teach your grandma. Because the Pac Jam signature dance was called Throw the D. And it was raunchy as hell. Here to explain, JT Money. Well, it, it was cool to throw the D back then. You know what I'm saying? Back then, you know, the Throw the D boys got all the girls. The routine was legendary among Liberty City teenagers in the 80s. It always started the same way. Luke or one of the Pac Jam's other DJs would put on a record called Herman Kelly's Dance to the Drummer's Beat. And as soon as that beat dropped, everyone went wild. It was time to throw that D. You got to uh, pump your hip. You got to thrust your hips forward. You got to make sure that D snap. Yes, they would squat low and they would just throw it forward. It's a a pump motion. It's like throwing that dick, you know? You're slanging it to her, you know? You're putting it on the table. Like, come in, girl, get some of this. When they say throw that D, they meant throw that D, like... (laughs) It's advertisement. (laughs) It's the the male mating call. The male mating signal. You know how the peacock over his his tail (laughs) swing? Uh, Niggas in Miami throw the dick. Yes, and they were doing this. (laughs) Kids like JT, Trick, Trina, Nisi D, and Ross would go to the Pac Jam every weekend. 
They'd pull up in the evening in their Michael Jackson jackets and their tennis skirts and dance until the early hours of the morning, even though a lot of them were still really young. And the, the, the original Pac Jam, believe it or not, in middle school, on Friday night, the Pac Jam closed at 3 o'clock a.m. And on Saturday night, it closed at 4 o'clock. Now, keep in mind, this is Pac Jam Teen Disco. They closed at four o'clock. <laughs> and it was like, we was advanced because we grew up fast. In the fifth grade, it was usually, if you was a virgin in the fifth grade, girl or boy, you was considered as a lame, an L7. They picked on you. Fifth grade. That's crazy, ain't it? But that's way before a lot of these diseases that, 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 that terminate your life. Only thing we had to worry about was catching crabs and, and gonorrhea at the time. Shot in the ass and some old blue star coil uh, shampoo. A night at the Pac Jam was not to be missed. And it was here, in this sweatbox teen disco, that a new kind of music would be formed. A hip-hop subgenre. A faster, nastier, dirtier version, propelled by the 808 drum machine and enough bass to make your spine shake. They called it Miami Bass. It was this music that would propel Luke and the Two Live crew to stardom and set them on a collision course with the U.S. government. After the break, we hear the song that lights the fuse. That was Mogul, season two, Miami. Host Brandon Jenkins is still with me in the booth. Brandon, tell the people where the best place to listen um, to it. Spotify is the best place to listen to it. You can binge the entire season, and we'll also be adding bonus content to Spotify to the feed. So, um, And you can go back and see season one. But... It's available everywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, everywhere. Just type in Mogul and press play. Wow. <laughs> oh, you got it. <laughs>